When is a time in your life that God grabs your attention? Maybe it was a momentous new chapter. You said, I do. You held your baby in your arms for the first time. You ventured out into a new job. Maybe it was, probably more often the case, a low point in your life. Bankrupt, arrested, even depressed, screwed up in a big way, let down. Maybe God got your attention at an unexpected loss or a heartbreak. Whatever it was, whenever it was, God opened your ears through your situation so that you heard his word and his word impacted you in a new way. When was that? You know, the question assumes certain elements of how we were living at the time, doesn't it? Doesn't it assume that our attention needed to be grabbed in some way? You know, most of the times when it happens, we didn't realize that our attention needed to be grabbed. We thought we were already pursuing God, already listening. But now God reveals himself and gets our attention in a new way. It assumes that this life, our time in our lives, that in some way we were not listening to God. That the way we were living, the voices we listened to, especially our own voice, blocked the frequency of God's word to us. Now, just answering the question myself, when did God get your attention in your life? Several times in my life, the Lord has got my attention. I assume that he will need to get my attention again very soon, probably in the next year or years to come. Uh, the time in my life that sticks out the most as the most attention grabbing is probably when I went away to college. At college, everything was new. Surroundings, people, the world is my oyster, possibilities and potential everywhere. I thought I was one who listened to God, but just turns out I did not listen to God entirely. I think once we're saved, that's, that's the road we go on. We listen to God, and just God reveals to us ways that we aren't listening to him. When I went away to college, I, never, I realized that I never seriously asked God what he wanted me to do, what he wanted me to do specifically for a vocation. I assumed that I would just do what I like. I would do something with sports and make as much money as I can and do outwardly Christian practices in the meantime. But just through a combination of factors, including by his grace, even those practices that were just outward, God showed me what I was pursuing wasn't all that I, that I thought it was cracked up to be. And God showed me at that time also that he was way better than I, than I cracked him up to be. It's just, that's how God's attention-grabbing process normally works. We pursue false hopes. He allows us to discover false, those false hopes in some way. And in his grace, God shows us him again. It's the same process that takes place in the chapters of Isaiah we're in today. Isaiah speaks to people who are in perilous times, people who used to dwell in security, but now have uncertainty around them. Where will they go in uncertain times? That's been the dominating question of the first half of Isaiah. To whom will they flee? God gives them reason after reason to trust in him and trust in him alone during this time of uncertainty. This is the message that Isaiah preached. 
Trust in God, the God who rules over heaven and earth. Trust him alone. But over and over again, the people of Judah would not listen. So today, we see God will get their attention. God's going to get the attention of the people who refuse to listen. Here's the main point I think Isaiah's trying to get across his, to his readers throughout chapters 28 to 35. That's out of God's grace. He confronts us to get our attention or to, and restores us to walk after him and receive the joy that's in him alone. I'll repeat that just in case you were taking notes. Out of his grace, God confronts us to get our attention and restores us so that we walk after him and then receive the joy that's in him alone. Now we're going to go through this passage noticing three stages of the attention-grabbing process. And this process happens over and over again in these chapters. It's like a cycle. The process goes something like this. People refuse to listen. God gets their attention and people are restored. Refuse to listen. God gets their attention. People are restored. So as we head through this passage, we should pray. We should pray that today, as in every time we approach God's word, that God gets our attention so that we have a new kind of hope, a zeal, a love to follow the Lord and trust him alone. All right, so first stage of the attention-grabbing process, people refuse to listen. Now, if you're like me, when you hear that title, people refuse to listen, you think of maybe a small child sticking their fingers in their ears, closing their eyes, and just shaking their heads real hard back and forth. Now, if that's the image that pops into your head, it's actually not a bad association. Because several times in these chapters, God's going to tell the people of Judah that they are acting childishly. We say often that grown-ups don't really stop acting childishly. They just find grown-up ways to act childishly. Now, before we see that how Judah refused to listen, we should see what they refused to listen to, the message they refused to hear. Now, remember that the backdrop of these chapters and the backdrop of much of the book of Isaiah was a looming threat a looming threat from a growing and aggressive empire called Assyria. This was to the northeast of Israel. Now, Assyria had already taken Judah's northern neighbors of Israel. So remember, this is the time of the divided kingdom described in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Formerly united, now divided. Now, big bad Assyria had already taken Israel to the north, including its capital city of Samaria. I know a lot of names. There won't be a test later. It's just to give you a helpful background. A growing and a looming threat. That's what's important to know. Assyria is going to be knocking on Judah's door anytime. And Judah has to decide what's going to be our plan of action. What's going to be our strategy here? Now, Judah, in these chapters, we find out they thought that the best way forward, that the most secure way forward, the way that made the most sense 
was to go to another country that could defend them against big bad Assyria. And what was their country of choice, you might ask, during this time? It was Egypt. Egypt. Now, if you know a little bit of the history of Judah and Israel, this should sound off to you. Because here was Judah seeking to find freedom by going to the country that formerly enslaved them. Finding freedom in a slave master. That's just the illogic, illogical nature and foolish nature of sin. It just is. So the center of God's message to Judah that's seeking refuge in Egypt comes in chapter 31, verse 1 of Isaiah. I want you to turn there because I want you to see it. Chapter 31, verse 1 of Isaiah. It's on page 592. If you're looking at a Bible, that's in the pew rack in front of you. Page 592. Big looming threat from the northeast. What's Judah going to do? And what is God's response to it? Chapter 31, verse 1 kind of the center of this passage. God says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So God's message to Judah boils down to this. Don't go to Egypt. Not only will it not work, but more than that, it's also wrong. It's wrong. You guys are placing Egypt where I should be. This right here is the message that Judah refused to hear. Now, what did that refusal look like? What explains it? How does God describe how they refused to hear him? That's what we're going to look at in these chapters. So let's take a tour of this passage. This, this refusal to hear comes up time and again. Uh, these chapters open with words against the leaders of Judah at this time who were leading in a very bad way. They were paving the way of this wrong strategy. They were modeling wrongly of what it looked like to refuse to listen to the Lord. So let's just take a tour. We're going to see what Judah's refusal to hear God looked like. So go to chapter 28, verses 7 to 13. Just as you're turning there, we're going to be flipping around a lot in this passage. If I was sitting in those pews, I would be looking at the Bible because, or else I would get lost. That's just how I operate. I'll let you do you. Uh, chapter 28, verses 7 to 13. These also reel with wine. And stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those who have taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. To whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet 
they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here little, there little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Here was a time of national crisis. National crisis. And they looked to Judah's leaders. And what did Judah's leaders do? They drank themselves into a stupor. They attempted to escape from dealing with this problem. And you see where it says, you know, that, that refrain, precept after precept, line upon line. This is how the leaders of Judah were hearing God's word. Now, in the original language, it's a bit more helpful. Those words, precepts, that word for line, they aren't even words at all. So this is how the leaders of Judah were hearing God's words. Not as words at all. These words are just syllables. They're nothingness. It's as if Isaiah is saying, saying these leaders in Judah, they hear God's words as blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. So, God says, if that's the case, if that's how you're going to respond to my word, I will bring foreign people to you who actually speak words that really sound like this. And the result will not be rest. It will be ruin. But still, verse 12, right here in chapter 28, still they refuse to listen. So, keeping on the tour, what, it looks, what the refusal to listen looks like. Chapter 29, find verse 11. These words are still against Judah's religious leaders who refuse to hear, but this time it's their priests, their so-called religious leaders who are indicted. Chapter 29, verse 11. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed of, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. If you know your Bibles, if you know the New Testaments, you know that Jesus used these words to describe the Pharisees. And this is a really simple message, isn't it? It's a simple message that we know. It's a simple message that we have seen, we've experienced, but we might forget to apply to ourselves, actually. I've heard one pastor say that the fastest way to become a Pharisee is to hate Pharisees. You know, Pharisees, one of Pharisees' M.O.s is to look down on other people. If you look down on Pharisees, well, friends, what does that make you? <laughs> the simple message is this. We can do right things for the wrong reasons. We can do right things 
with a cold heart. We can do right things and even be far from God. We can do right things and even take assurance in those right things. You know, we got a great statement of faith. We come to church every Sunday. We read our Bibles. We dress in button-down shirts. We can do right things even as a way to keep God at a distance. One way we refuse to listen to God is pretending that we listen to him while in our hearts keeping him at a distance. Come to church, read our Bibles, have hearts that are still far from God. In another place, friends, this is often on my mind, the Bible warns us of having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. The appearance of godliness, but denying its power. We need the power of godliness or the power of God in our hearts. We need that. The, the Bible says that the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that power is in all those who believe. Our prayer, therefore, is that we would experience God as being real. Not just in our heads, not just in our habits, but in our hearts. That's the power of God. Friends, we are tempted to coast. Regardless of our stage in life, each stage in life might bring different temptations in this. We are tempted to coast, tempted to settle for a mediocre and dull relationship with God. Y'all, the stakes are too high, too many threats. We are too weak to settle for this. Friends, we know, we know that we listen to God, not by because we go through the right motions. Obedience matters, yes. But more than that, it is a heart obedience. We know that we listen to God if we have a growing and abiding and deeper love for him. A love for God, just a simple question. Do you love God? Do you love him? Christian, would you pursue this? Would you pray that God develops this in you? More than going through the motions, but actual, real, deep, growing, persevering love for God. And you're just thinking of who this passage is directed toward. Isaiah's writing to leaders. So we see the importance of modeling a relationship with the Lord that's, that starts in our hearts. So each one of us has the opportunity to do that to some extent, to model a relationship with the Lord, to be an example. Whether that means you're a parent, whether that means you're a grandparent, whether that just means you're a friend. But just especially, particularly, leaders of God's people are particularly challenged, particularly called and charged to model what it looks like to listen to the Lord. Not just outwardly, but by having their hearts close to him also. So just think about this. Friends, if, if leaders do not have a real relationship with God, how can they expect to lead God's people to a real relationship with them? That's the weight of the calling. This is why character is more important than giftedness. So, friends, we, just, we humbly ask, that you would pray for, our, for us, the elders at this church? Would you pray for us? That God would help us 
sinful and ordinary men shepherd his flock as examples, as examples of what a real relationship with the Lord from our hearts looks like, that we as leaders want the power of godliness, not just the appearance of godliness. So God's message to Judah at this time, a big looming threat, Assyria to the northeast, coming down on them, they're going to have to make a decision sooner or later. His message, trust me, trust in me alone. Don't go down to Egypt. This is the message they refuse to hear. One more example of their refusal. Go to chapter 30, verse 9. It's a good way to sum, sum up their refusal to hear God. God says, for they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside to the from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Here we get to see what's underneath everything, don't, don't we? They could try to escape from dealing with their problems. They could dress up their refusal with nice religious language. Strip all of that away, and at its core of the refusal, we find rebellion. What we've talked about over the past couple weeks. They wanted their way, not God's way. They were the masters of their fate. They were the captain of their souls, not God. They did not want to hear from God, and instead sought freedom in what actually would enslave them. People refused to hear. Friends, we are, we are really thankful. Look at, look at the people here. We are thankful each one of you are here today. That's God's grace. We are thankful even more so than in many of us, there is not a refusal to hear God's word. There is a longing and a hunger to receive God's word. But y'all, I, I don't want us to assume that that will always be the case in our lives. I don't want us to assume that that's the case for every single person here. So in light of the point of, of people refusing to hear God's word, I just ask you, how are you hearing God's word today? How are you hearing God's word today? Now, I know when we open this book, we're going to read about cultures that, receive, that seem removed, that seem distant, you won't find pictures in this book, at least in, like originally. Um, these are black words on a white page. When you open this book, you're going to find language that we don't use. You might have a harder time understanding. It's going to take work to open this book. I know. Acknowledging all of that, just asking, how do you hear this book? Can you bring yourself to remember that these are words from God, from, from God, who made everything, from God. There's, there's no other God. These are words from God. If we have that conviction in our hearts, that's when the longing comes in. That's when we'll say along with the psalmist that God's words are more precious than gold. They are sweeter than honey. That's when we'll be like the Thessalonians who heard Paul preach the gospel and regarded it not as words from men, but as what they really are, words from God. So when we open this book, when we hear it preached, we will either be delighted 
or we will be annoyed or kind of complacent. We will either long for it or we will say, ah, this is, this is dumb. This is not that impressive. We will either delight in hearing this, long for it, yearn for it, or we will say, oh, that's nice. I'm just going to still do my thing. Friends, how do you hear God's word? Just as a side note off of that, this is probably a better way to think of coming to church than asking the question, how was church today? It's probably a better way to think of it. Because the, the question, how was church, is innocent on the surface. We don't think through a lot of these things. But the question, how was church, implies that we sit in evaluation of what goes on here before what goes on here sits in evaluation of us. This book reads us before we read it. God's word is over us. God's word is not under us. So maybe a better question would be, as I heard someone ask, say before, is like, how did you fare under the word today? How, what was encouraging? What was impactful? What was challenging? How did you change? How did you see God in a new way? That's a little more deeper. I think that's a better stance than how was church? Well, this is the first stage of the attention-grabbing process. People refuse to listen. Second stage, God gets their attention. So open up the stage, we should say, right at the start, that disapproval is not the opposite of love. Disapproval is not the opposite of love. Now, there is a way to disapprove that is unloving. I think we've all experienced that. But it's often the case that not to disapprove is unloving. So the opposite of love is not disapproval. The opposite of love is often indifference. Now, this isn't the same as being slow to speak. It's when you've simply stopped caring. The opposite of love is not disapproval. Just a story maybe to illustrate this. During World War II, some strange alliances were formed, including one between Winston Churchill, the prime minister of Great Britain, and Joseph Stalin, the dictator of the Soviet Union. It was kind of an enemy, against my, enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of deal. They were united together against Hitler in Nazi Germany. So in his memoirs, Churchill wrote that Stalin showed himself to be utterly indifferent to Great Britain's fate and that he was, in his own words, surly, snarling, grasping, ungrateful, suspicious, bullying, accusatory, and manipulative. I want to hang out with that guy. <laughs> now, when they became allies... Stalin frequently blamed England for Russia's troubles. But Churchill did his best to be patient, to be forgiving, to be generous, just kept the larger picture in mind, like we are stronger together than we are apart. But even though Churchill was patient, that didn't mean Churchill always laid down and appeased Stalin's behavior. On one occasion, Stalin sent an ambassador to England to talk to Churchill, and Churchill sensed an ulterior motive. He sensed just a little bit too much aggression. And so what did Churchill do? He didn't just lay down. He voiced his disapproval. He said this, Remember that only four months ago, we in this island did not know whether you were coming in against us on the German side. 
Whatever happens and whatever you do, you of all people have no right to make reproaches on us. Now, Churchill continued impatience in his relationship with the Soviets, but he would not approve of what was wrong. He stood up to a bully without becoming a bully. And that actually got the bully's attention. Their relationship changed. Friends, God is gracious and loving enough to confront us and voice his disapproval when we are wrong. He is gracious and loving enough to do that. And that should get our attention. It's going to see a couple examples of how God, out of his grace, confronts Judah. So go back to chapter 28, real quick. Chapter 28, find verse 14. Examples of God voicing his disapproval, confronting Judah. It says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have made an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come on us. For we have made lies our refuge and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. God calls hoping in Egypt like signing your death wish. That's what he calls it. This is confrontation. God here, God is saying, this will not go well for you, and I won't let it go on. Like Matthew 7, Jesus' story, like the fool who built his house on the sand, the storm will wash it away, and the storm will come. God confronts them, voices his disapproval. Go to chapter 29, right at the very beginning. Chapter 29. It says, ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year. Let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation. And she shall be to me like an Ariel, and I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down, and your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. From the dust your speech shall whisper. Ariel, that title there, means altar hearth. It's the stone surface on the altar where sacrifices were made, where fire consumed the sacrifices. So Jerusalem was the place where people made substitutionary sacrifices like God, like I should be here. This goes in my place. But remember, they're just going through the motions with all this. Isaiah says, add year after year. Let the feasts go on. God confronts their hypocrisy. God confronts their empty religious ritual. And he says, guys, You can keep on doing this, but it will not get you anywhere. God confronts them, voices his disapproval. Another confrontation, chapter 30, verse 12. Chapter 30, verse 12. 
Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly. Among its fragments, not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip water out of the cistern. What God's saying here, their plan to save themselves will not work. He calls it like building a big, tall wall. All their security and human hopes, all their security in Egypt seems secure, but then a little crack emerges in this wall. And the crack goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And eventually the wall collapses. Human hopes will prove hopeless. Here's God confronting Judah, who's refusing to listen. He says, this is what it will lead to. We could keep going. We could keep noticing different examples of God's confrontation of his people who are refusing to listen. There are other words in chapter 32 about complacency, people who just don't care, who don't have a mind to this. Out of grace, friends, God confronts us, tells us, that the path on which we are headed will lead to disaster. His words are meant to wake us up. His words are meant to grab our attention, to bring us to a point along the lines of chapter 33, verse 14. It says that the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? In other words, how can we as sinners stand in our sin under God's judgment? God confronts us, tells us the path on which we are heading, tells us it's leading to disaster. I remember during the solar eclipse a couple years ago, you may remember that, um, you couldn't directly look at it. And you had to have like these special glasses and they were like, they sold out everywhere. I couldn't even get a pair. Sold like gangbusters. Someone wisely said that we dare not look casually into the sun and yet we plan to casually stroll into the presence of the one who made the sun. My goodness. The Bible says that God is a consuming fire of holiness. And we plan to casually stroll into his presence, standing in our sin. So, it is loving that God confronts us, tells us to listen, tells us where we are headed. And often the way he does that is letting us experience some of the tastes of where we are headed without him as our trust. Yeah, we say from the, our own experience that sometimes hitting a brick wall is finally how God gets through to us. Even after we are Christians, sometimes hitting a brick wall is how we know God in new ways, how our trust deepens, how we see that he is God and that he can be trusted and that he is better at fulfilling his promises than we are. And this is just the pattern of the Bible. God allows people to experience some of the outcomes of their sin allows them to hit a brick wall so that they will listen, so that he wakes them up. Think back in Genesis of Jacob wrestling with God, brought to his end. 
so that he stops trusting in his own schemes. You think of Job, even, brought to the end of himself. Finally, just casts himself on God and knows God in new ways. Think of David, who we read earlier. God brings David to the end of himself and confronts him and wakes up David through his word. Think of somebody like Jonah running away from God. God allows him to hit a brick wall. Really, the wall looked like stomach lining. (laughs) And he casts himself on God, coming to the end of ourselves and then coming to the Lord. God gets their attention. Example after example of God's grace to confront us when we are in our sin, to confront us when we refuse to listen so that we will come to see our false hopes, that they will lead to disaster. Because out of his grace, God brings us to the end of ourselves so that we will finally hear him. God confronting us reminds us that even when we get to the point, even getting to the point of seeing our need is grace. That takes God's grace, getting to see our need. But when we finally do come to the end of ourselves, when we finally hit that brick wall, when our ears are finally unplugged, what will we see? What will we hear? Will we see someone who kicks us when we're down? Will we see someone or hear someone who says, after all I've done for you, this is how you repay me? Will we hear someone who says, serves you right? Look at me, I would never do something like you did. Will we hear that when we come to our end of ourselves and are brought to God? What will we hear? Go to chapter 30, verse 18. When we've hit hopelessness and God turns us to him, we see the one described in chapter 30, verse 18. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. When God brings us to the end of ourselves, then God speaks and his word pierces our hearts so that it's alive. And so that then we taste and see that the Lord is good that he truly is gracious, that grace is amazing to us. Friends, come, come, get the rest for your souls that, you, that nothing else can give you, that you've been longing for your entire lives. Come, when we are brought to the end of ourselves, the words of Jesus from Matthew eleven twenty eight sound sweeter than they ever have been before. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Y'all, we will experience the sweetness and power of grace when we, friends, are humbly approachable. Are you approachable? Are you humbly approachable? When God, through his word, or God, through his people, lovingly but honestly confronts you when you're wrong, are you approachable? Do you even invite confrontation? One place in the psalm says, search me, O God. See if there's any hidden way in me. 
From these chapters, friends, we get another warning that we can still continue to refuse. We can still continue to refuse to be approachable. Refuse to hear God confronting us and plunge ourselves into the reality of an eternity apart from God, an eternity under his judgment. That's described in stark terms in chapter 34. We can continue to refuse or we will listen to God confronting us and take refuge in him. We won't be able to say that God didn't say anything. Just won't be. C.S. Lewis famously said, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. God confronts us, those who refuse to listen, and tells us where we're heading, and tells us it doesn't have to be this way. So friends, what happens when we listen? Last point, I'm going to get through it real quick. People are restored. When we listen, people are restored. So remember, God's message for Judah in the midst of the threat of Assyria was to trust him, not to trust Egypt, not to trust their wisdom, but to trust him. And in a thousand different ways, Judah refused to listen. But God confronts them, grabs their attention. There will be some who continue to refuse to hear, but there will be others who listen. Those who once thought that they could get way more out of life apart from God are brought to discover that they could get way more than they ever imagined with God. Let's take one more tour, one more tour, quick tour, to see how God restores his people who refuse to listen. First, we're going to see that the humbled ones find rest. Go back to chapter 29, 29, verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Those who refused to hear those who refuse to see. Their ears are opened and their eyes are opened. They're humbled. They're brought to the end of themselves. But then, you see, they are exalted. They obtain fresh joy in the Lord, not in themselves. People who refuse to hear, their ears are opened. People who are proud, refuse to hear, are humbled and they are exalted. God restoring his people. Go to chapter 30, verse 19. What happens after we listen? Chapter 30, verse 19. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears, he answers you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. What happens after we hear The ones who are humbled, brought to the end of themselves, receive grace. And the ones who received grace want to follow the one who has shown them grace. 
and leave behind their old way of life. Leave behind their idols. The ones who listen, just in short, the ones who listen are transformed. Chapter 33, verse 17, what happens after we listen? After our hearts are opened. Chapter 33, verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your hearts will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of your appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. We listen. Our ears are open because we're humbled. We receive grace. And having received grace, we walk joyfully in repentance. And we will be under the perfect rule of the king who saved us and the king who protects us. One more. One more. The, very, the culmination of all of it. She's going to read all of chapter 35. It's short. What happens after we hear? What does God restoring his people look like? The people who formerly refused to hear him. Chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lay down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they will not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The king who saved his people brings his people to everlasting joy, which is found, friends, in his presence. Those brought into everlasting joy, notice at the very end, are those who are ransomed, those who are purchased. We, knowing the whole story, know that God did this through his son. He's done this through the cross. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. So the whole story, friends, of this passage, people are stubborn, but God gives grace. People don't listen, 
but God opens ears. People are proud, but God humbles. People are humbled, but God lifts up. People are enslaved to sin, but God sets the slaves of sin free through the work of Christ. People refuse to listen, but God restores people who refuse to listen. Friend, hear him today and come to him through Christ. One pastor sums up the end of this passage really, really well. I wanted to share it with you. He says, some people are content with the self-importance and pettiness and materialism of this present age. They fill their bellies, they fill their bank accounts and their egos with the salvations of this world. They will go on forever discovering how empty such fullness is. There are others whose hearts yearn for something more. They long for God's salvation. And they will receive it. Not because they deserve it, but because Jesus lived and died for them. And though the pursuit of their joy in Christ may cost them everything here in this world, they don't mind. They gladly leave it behind and press on toward a joy that will never end. Well, friend, how does this sound to you? Last week we asked if we could recognize that the world isn't how it should be. Perhaps this week we should ask, do we recognize that we aren't as we should be? Everything in the world would tell us, yes, we are as we should be. But there are undeniable brick walls in our life that tell us, no, we are not what we should be. And God loves us enough to care about it. He loves us enough to do something about it, not to throw away justice, but to act on, on our behalf in such a way that satisfies his justice, to confront us, to rescue us, to live for us, to die for us, to raise us, and to restore us to who we were made to be and who we were made for. And he does that through Jesus, the promised king talked about in all these chapters. We give our hearts to him, all of it, he is worth more than holding at arm's length. He is worth listening to. He is worth trusting confidently in. He is worth following hard after. He is worth our worship. Does he have your attention? Let's pray. Oh God, what riches of kindness that you lavished on us. That Jesus sought us when we were a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. That you pursued us who did not want you, who refused to listen, and you opened our eyes. So God, we still frequently stray. We are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. So God, here's our hearts. Take and seal it. Protect us. Help us listen to your voice and help us return. Bring us back to yourself to trust you alone. I mean, God, just look ahead and see the joy everlasting that trust in you brings us to. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.